Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we've sung this morning that it is with gladness that we enter your gates and we come into your courts with praise. And Father, I want to thank you so much that we can come in to your gates where you tell us what you want us to hear and into your courts where you sit in judgment with us and we will have praise and thanksgiving in our hearts. Father, I pray this morning for a spirit of conviction upon us all. Father, we know, Lord, that in these desperately dark days, your church has got to show the way. And Father, we've got to show that we've got peace, whereas the world hasn't got it, because we have Jesus living in the midst. And Father, as we speak about dwelling together in peace, I want to pray, Lord, that there should be no one in this place who isn't convicted in, their innermost, in the innermost parts of their being. Father, we, we know we have a long way to go. Father, we thank you, though, that you're taking us along the path and that the one who has begun the good work in us shall bring it to completion. And Father, we thank you for those signs already that we see, that the glory of God is beginning to appear, even in our mortal bodies. Oh, Father, we just rejoice with a wonderful sense of, of fulfillment, Lord, because we are in your plan and in your purpose. I'm asking, Lord, in Jesus' name, that there should be such a sense of unity and peace in your body, that, Father, the world should come in to find and to seek from us a place of refuge. Father, this morning, really speak to our hearts and get down to real nitty-gritty things in our lives, that, Father, we should indeed dwell together in that place of unity where even you are blessed in our company, Lord. Father, this morning, take my mouth and, Father, speak through it. And take our ears and give us enlightenment, Lord, by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This morning I'm speaking on the subject of dwelling together in peace. Now, the point I want to make is this. That if in a fellowship, everything we've covered in these fellowship talks is actually in operation, if there is the full love of the Lord, if people are praising God, if we're really helping one another in practical ways in the midst. I want you to know that even though these things might be operating, that does not automatically mean there will be growth and sustained glory in a local fellowship group. Unfortunately, it's not quite as easy as making sure everything is put in the right order in a fellowship and everything is done according to the Word of God. You see, we have an enemy who in the Bible is said to prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And every fellowship that is moving into the right order of things will soon find that the devil starts to attack. Of course he'll start to attack. Because any fellowship that's moving right is a deadly enemy as far as he is concerned. He doesn't want the gospel to get out. He doesn't want the world to see the light that's in the church. He doesn't want the glory of the church to show on every hand. And it won't be long when everything comes functioningly right in a fellowship before the evil one pokes up his head. Most of us, of course, would say, oh, well, yes, that's quite obvious. There is going to be persecution. And there will be people who will be opposed to the work of God. If only it was as easy as that, we would have no trouble. I generally found, you know, that where persecution hits a particular community church, then in fact that church starts to thrive. 
you know? I've noticed even in our own fellowship, whenever there's an attack from outside, we all take a step together, and suddenly we close ranks, as the army say, you know? And suddenly we find we're on the defensive. It's easy. Have you noticed those meetings where we've uh, had someone who's come in and they've been a troublemaker in the midst, and they're just waiting for the opportunity to speak, you know? and you see them get to their feet. It's been some years now since it's happened in the fellowship. You know, probably it's got round what actually happens to people like that. But uh, they stand up in the midst, and they're going to criticise. And do you know, it's so lovely, because as soon as they begin, you see every person's head go down in the fellowship. They all bow their heads as if to say, Lord, stop this man in Jesus' name. And suddenly you see the elders' heads go up, you know? And, uh, of course, this is the function of eldership. And before long, you have an elder on his feet, actually saying, excuse me, brother, but I wonder whether you could continue your, rem continue your remarks to me afterwards, privately, you know? And the, or you say something like, uh, brother, I'm sorry, I don't think it's the word of the law for the meeting. Would you please sit down? But everyone in the midst has actually closed ranks. Easy. In fact, I think most fellowships are a bit like this amazing stuff that was invented by the Greeks. Have you heard of it? It's called Greek fire. In those days, people used to fire flaming arrows onto the wooden ships, trying to burn them at sea, you know? And of course, there were a team of men with buckets around, buckets of water. And as soon as a flaming arrow hit the deck, they used to rush up and pour water on it and put it out. And so a brilliant Greek decided, well, say we can uh, develop a type of fire that isn't put out by water. And he actually developed a substance called Greek fire. And Greek fire was wonderful. The more you put water on it, the more it flared up and spread. Hallelujah. And these people were running with their buckets of water and actually spreading the fire. Ships just burnt, you know, like mad in those days. Incidentally, we've never found out what it was. It died with the Greeks, unfortunately. But most fellowships are like that. Whenever there's an attack from outside and persecution hits, suddenly they're spreading like wildfire. Suddenly the flames are ten feet tall instead of the one foot that they were before. Oh, if the devil only attacked like that, there'd be no problem whatsoever. The trouble is, of course, he doesn't. And the subtlety of his attack is this, that if the outside attack fails, or if he knows an outside attack won't succeed, he starts attacking from within. He's always done it. Let me, show you, let me show you an example in Scripture where the attack started to come from within. Turn to the book of Nehemiah and go to chapter 5. Nehemiah and chapter 5. Now, those of you who know Nehemiah will know that in Nehemiah chapter 4... There's an attack from outside. Do you remember Samballot and Tobiah come against the work of the Lord? And you'll notice these good believers in these days, they don't uh, just say, oh, well, yes, we better just let them run over the work. They actually end up with a shovel in one hand and with a weapon in the other hand, you see? One to fight the enemy with and the other to continue doing the work. There was no disarmament, you notice, among believers uh, in those particular days. And once Satan's attack from outside has failed, then the attack starts from within. And in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1, look what happens. And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. 
For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as, our, as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are, are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And what was happening here was this. The people who were working on the building had given up their jobs so that they could devote themselves full time to the work. And as a result of giving up their jobs, they had to pay out of their own money for the food that they were devouring. And some of these people weren't very rich. There were some that had land, and they mortgaged their land to pay for the food so that they could work. There were others who didn't. They had to take out loans from other Jews just so that the work could continue. And some actually sold their children into slavery so that they could get some food so that the work should be continued. And the people who were lending them the money were charging interest on the loan. And these people who'd given up everything to build the wall, they were saying, well, this is ridiculous. Our fellow Jews are becoming rich while we build the wall around the city, while we build those city, the, the city. And a tremendous bitterness had developed inside. And you see how serious an attack this is. Because if that type of bitterness starts developing and growing, before long, the work is going to stop completely. In fact, most of them will be saying, well, I'm giving this in. Why should he get rich? Well, I'm poor. I'm getting poorer by the minute, and I'm doing the work of the Lord. It's absolutely wrong. And Nehemiah, realizing that this is an attack of the, of the devil in the midst, he has to move in to deal with it. And you'll notice what happens in verse 6. Nehemiah says this, And I was very angry when I heard their cry in these words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, that's interest, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And he moves in so that justice is done. But this is the attack of the enemy. He's failed as far as the outside attack is concerned, so now he's going to put discontent in the midst. It's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about a division that may occur in a church because of uh, a doctrinal issue. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a fellowship or a church that may have complete unity among themselves. They all agree about the work of the Lord. They all agree about doctrine. And yet soon they find that personal bitterness comes in to the midst. Soon there's a sort of wrangling that goes on, one person against another. It's the enemy now beginning attack, the attack from inside. Because do you know what happens finally? Finally, if it's allowed to continue, a fellowship will actually cease to function effectively because people are against one another in the midst. There's another lovely example, actually, in Zechariah. Turn, turn to the book of Zechariah and chapter 11. And let me show you how important this inner unity really is. In Zechariah and chapter 11... And verse 7b, right, the second half of verse 7. 
Now, this is Zechariah warning the Jews of judgment that's coming. They've gone away from the Lord, and judgment is going to come. And so, like many of the Old Testament uh, uh, prophets, he actually gives them a demonstration. Do you know what he does? He takes two shepherd's staffs. You know what a shepherd's staff was, do you? It was a long piece of very thick wood. And the shepherd used to fight the enemies of the sheep with this piece of wood. If a wolf came along, he would stand there and he'd aim for the wolf's head. And he'd smash the skull of the wolf, if possible, with this staff. The staff represented the way the shepherd fights for the sheep. And look what happens. Here, he doesn't take one staff. He takes two staves. And I took unto me two staves. In other words, there are two enemies here that are being fought. The one I called beauty, and the other I called bands, and I shepherded the flock. Now, what were these two? The word beauty in Hebrew is also the word favor or grace. And this was the staff that the Lord used to stop outside enemies attacking Israel. Do you know how he did it? It was so wonderful. When the Jews were in fellowship with him, he put a, a, a feeling of admiration into the nations around Israel so that the people around would either be friends with the Jews or they would fear them so much that they actually wouldn't come anywhere near them. That was the staff called beauty, you see. And when the Jews were functioning, no one ever tried to attack them from outside because God used to be there with the staff called beauty, you see? And everyone used to think well of Israel. Incidentally, sometime I'll be dealing with British history, and you know you can see phases in British history. And the phases where we are a godly nation following the word of God, all the nations around the world respect us. They all think we're fantastic. And then the next generation, and sometimes it's happened within a space of five years, has been apostate. And the next thing that, that you know is happening, no one has any time at all for Britain. That's exactly this staff called beauty. All right? And you'll notice in verse 10, I took my staff, even beauty, and I broke it asunder that I may break my covenant which I had made with all the people. In other words, you Jews, if you stay out of fellowship, soon you're going to be attacked from outside because I'm not going to defend you. That was the first one. The second one was called bands or unity. And this was the staff that God used to keep the Jews unified and together. You see? Now, the first one is broken, beauty, and nations start attacking. But notice what happens, verse 14. Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And let me tell you this. Once bands is broken, the nation is finished. Once inner unity is broken in a nation, the nation has gone downhill and is on the way out. Absolutely. You see? Both of these, by the way, were fulfilled in AD 70. Do you remember in AD 66 to AD 70, the Romans attacked Israel? And there were the Roman armies all the way around Jerusalem. There was a siege. And the amazing thing is that for two years, the Romans just couldn't get into Jerusalem. They just couldn't do it. The fortifications were so strong 
that not one Roman soldier could enter those gates, you see? And the Jews, you know, in AD 66, they had 10 years' supply of wheat. They could have held out for 10 years. It was nothing. And they had granaries that were absolutely full of wheat. There was no problem at all. And the Jews just sat there, they manned the walls, but they knew that the Romans couldn't get in. You see? As the Romans came up, God had broken the first staff. That's beauty. And everything looked as if it was going to be all right for the Jews. Until finally, God then broke the second one, which is called bands. And do you know what happened? After two years of siege, suddenly, factions within Jerusalem started fighting one another. There was warfare inside the city of Jerusalem. And it was so violent that some idiot set fire to the barns containing the, the wheat. Set fire to the barns. Amazing. Ten years' supply of grain went up, not by the Romans, but by Jews in the middle of Jerusalem. Once that was gone, there was tremendous starvation in Jerusalem, and cannibalism actually broke out in the centre of Jerusalem. Not only that, do you know they actually set fire to the temple? The Roman officer who was uh, in charge of the warfare against Jerusalem, he told his troops, I don't want the temple destroyed. It wasn't a Roman, you know, that destroyed the temple. It was a Jew that destroyed the temple. We don't know who it was, but someone set fire to that place. Amazing. Why? Because unity had been broken in the midst. And once unity is broken, the enemy can get in from outside. It was just a few months later that the Romans went in and took over the city. And when they got in, they said even they were appalled at what they found. And the Romans were quite used to uh, going into nations. They were utterly appalled at what the Jews had done to themselves. Do you see how important this inner unity is? It's not just a question of outside enemy. It's a question of what is going to happen in the midst. And that's what this passage is all about, you see. Now, I'm convinced of this, that God wants unity in his church. I'm convinced of it. But not the unity that comes, as people are trying to get in this day, of compromise. But an inner unity where people have one heart, one mind, and they move together like that. Let's go to that lovely gem of a psalm, shall we? Psalm 133, and read about this unity. Psalm 133. This is probably the psalm that everyone knows. It's a psalm, I think, of true fellowship life together. Now look what it says. Verse 1 states a very important principle. Behold, he says, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And you don't, may not know this, but you know I get people who come down, they come to a meeting in the morning, they come on to see me in the afternoon, and they always say, Roger, it must be fantastic to have a group of people who all think the same way, who all want to praise the Lord, all want to raise their hands to heaven. And they say, if only it were true in our church, the moment we stand, raise our hands in our church, someone walks out. I had a man who came to see me, someone had walked out. All he does is lift his hands in the air. You see, there's no unity. And they say, it's fantastic to come among a group of people who all want to worship the Lord. Trouble is, we have it every week, we take it a bit for granted, that... 
But you see, that's the pleasantness that's being talked of here. And then he says two things in the, the verses that follow. First, it is like this unity, he says, this blessedness, this wonderful blessing that flows, is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now what's that mean? Well, every Jew would know what that meant. This was the ceremony of anointing the high priest with oil. When you are anointed with oil by the elders, we only use a little bit on your forehead, you know. They didn't used to do that in the Old Testament, and praise God we're not in the Old Testament. <laughs> what they used to do was to take the horn of a bull or some other animal that had a horn, scoop it out and fill it all with oil. So you used to have a good half pint or so of <laughs> cooking oil, or whatever it was, of olive oil, you see. And they used to come along, and there was the high priest, you know, it's very special stuff. They added all sorts of spices and things to it, it was wonderful. And they used to pour it over his head. And every Jew had seen this. The oil used to go over the head, used to then start flowing down over the hair, right down the beard, and after the beard, it used to then dribble down all the costume, and they used to watch it going down. There was so much that it ended up with a little puddle at his feet. Every single part of him was covered by the anointing oil. And the psalmist is saying, that's what unity is like. It covers from head to toe in blessing. The head is blessed, the shoulders are blessed, the stomach's blessed, the legs are blessed, and the feet are blessed. There's total blessing from top to the bottom, you see. In the body of Christ, what it means is this. When we dwell in unity together, first of all, the head's blessed. Jesus Christ is blessed by our unity, one with the other. But not only him, then everyone else is blessed too, and even the little toes of any fellowship are blessed, whoever you are. Praise the Lord, you know? That's lovely. And this is what unity, this real unity, is like. And it doesn't just stop there. Verse 3. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now, what does that mean? Well, you've got two other lovely pictures here. Hermon was tall. It was a very high mountain. The mountains of Zion were very low. So, from the top to the bottom, we'll be blessed. There was another thing as well. Hermon's in the north. Mount Zion is down in the south. So, from north to south is going to be blessed. And all of this is simply saying the blessing's going to flow in every part. You won't be able to stop it. There won't be anyone who's missed out of this blessing that comes from this inner unity. And finally, look at this. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And there the Lord commands and speaks the blessing. Now Satan knows that this is true. Satan knows that when a group of believers dwell in peace and unity together, everyone's blessed. The head is blessed and everyone else. That's why he'll try and stir up trouble in the midst. And he does it. It normally comes in a very subtle form. Gossip. That's a very subtle form. You know, you think gossip, oh, no, there's nothing wrong in gossip. There is. It's Satan speaking out through you. Slander. A preoccupation with what is wrong. You know, always find things wrong in any fellowship, you know. Praise the Lord. Yes, always do. There'll never, ever, ever be a perfect fellowship because we're all going on from one degree of glory to another. The perfect fellowship will be in heaven when we finally get there. But there are some people who preoccupy themselves with the negative. They forget the good things. It's all the negative. 
that comes out, you know? And they preoccupy themselves with those things that are wrong. They're slanderous, backbiters. This is the type of thing that goes on. And you know, when that's going on, that is inner strife and inner disunity. And the head's not at all blessed. And don't think he is. He's not. He looks down on his children. He says, squabbling bunch. You know, all was arguing down there, you know? Cool, I've just been to their meeting. I'll tell you, it was full of bitterness. I was glad to come home, he says. You see? But this ought to be his home. He ought to be at home in the midst of every fellowship. Of course Satan's going to try and stir these things up. The head isn't blessed and the toes aren't blessed. You see? Those poor old toes, they've come out of a world where there's backbiting and gossip. They come into the church for refuge and what do they find? The church is worse than anything else. Aha, uh -huh. that's, I've told you before, that's what I found, you know? I thought that uh, the non-Christians were bad enough gossipers. I hadn't met anything till I came into the body of Christ. And praise God, he showed me I was one of the worst offenders. <laughs> Hallelujah. You see? God had to start dealing with these things. Of course Satan is going to try and cause this inner disruption. But we have got to realize that when we do it, we are on Satan's side. We're enemies in the midst. We're quizzlings, you know? And we say we love the work of God. We say we're delighted to be in any work. But in effect, we are moving against that work. And we will destroy that work eventually unless we're unchecked. Absolutely true. Right? Let's just uh, see this. Turn to Galatians 5. Galatians chapter 5. I've heard people minister on this. Wow. I don't know. I think this particular section of Galatians shows up the um, lack of consistency that Christians have. Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read verse 19 down to verse 21. You all know this passage very, very well. Let me just uh, read it, read it through. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these... Now, most of you know these works of the flesh. I'm in the King James Version. If you've got a modern version, you'll understand them a bit better, I think. But look what it says. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Such like means, in case there's something you do that isn't in the list, that's covered by and such like. <laughs> you see so there's no one who gets away with anything so don't sit there and say wow that's a relief <laughs> you know oh, such light covers you I don't know whether you've ever noticed this but actually these sins of the flesh or these works of the flesh are actually divided into four groups let's just see this the first four which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness I'm not going through those in detail today but they're generally sensual sins they have to do with the sexual side of man, you know? So those go in a bunch by themselves. They're sensual sins. The next two are, well, what can I call them? I think I have to call them occult sins, the next two. And this is the second group, idolatry and witchcraft. And you'll notice, by the way, that people will be appalled if you indulged in any of those. But then the third section actually contains eight. The next eight words are the third section. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings. They're 
or the next lot, and they're sins of the attitude. Sins of the attitude up here. And then the last three, which are murders, drunkenness and revelings and such like, are in the category, I just call it miscellaneous. Right? There are any things that really appall us. And there they are. Now you've got four groups here. The first four, sensual sins. The next two, occult sins. The next eight are sins of the attitude. And the next lot are just miscellaneous. Fine. We are all appalled by category one, and by category two, and by category four. Yes, we are. Right? If these things were going on in the midst, you would really not feel too happy about it. You know, if someone just came, they just murdered their brother or sister. <laughs> you wouldn't feel particularly happy that particular morning that they were in the midst praising the Lord, you see. And also, if their drunkenness, revelings, uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry and witchcraft, these are all deadly poison as far as the Christian is concerned. But isn't it funny how tolerant we are about number three? In fact, number three are not only tolerated, they're indulged in in most fellowships. We don't view them the same as the others. Now, because this is so, I'm going to go through this list and I'm going to do it very slowly so that we understand what these are. And I think you'll be amazed at how true this is of most fellowships. Let's take the first one. This is verse 20 and right in the middle. And the ones I'm dealing with are hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies and envying. Now let's deal with the first one. Hatred here is not the normal Greek word for hate. That's not it. This is the word for enmity. The word for enmity. Enmity means having enemies. Right? This is having certain people that you don't really like in the midst. People you're not comfortable with. You see? People you've had a personality clash with and have some animosity towards. When you have hatred in the midst of a fellowship, it's the devil's work. But we tolerate it. Well, I just don't like her, thank you. Oh no, I don't want to be in that group because she's in that group. You see? It's hatred in the heart. You see? We have a personal relationship problem with them. And so, thank you very much, but we've rather... Keep it at arm's length. Thanks a lot, but uh, that's how we feel more comfortable. Jesus says, that is evil in your heart that needs to be rooted out. And don't you tolerate it and justify it. That's wrong, and if it's allowed to continue, Satan finally is going to disrupt the whole fellowship life. That's what hatred means, you see. Oh, but haven't I got rights? Yes, you've got rights, all right. But Jesus actually wants you to become meek and humble. And finally, to allow his love to flow. This type of hatred is the exact opposite of agape love. You see? There we are. But we tolerate this, don't we? Well, I think I'm in the right over this. And so, so it begins. That's what hatred means, right? A personal dislike, animosity, having enemies in the midst. And then the next one, variance. Variance is actually the word strife. Now, this is not just an attitude of heart now, this is where a person actually causes strife and discord in a fellowship. They might have uh, hatred in their hearts, 
they probably do have hatred in their hearts, but they're not content for it to be in their hearts. They've then got to do something about what they feel. And so they start causing disruption, you see. It comes out in gossip, of course. You see, it comes out in all sorts of ways, but the attempt is always to put down someone else. They don't like them, and they don't want anyone else to like them, and they'll cause a rift right down the fellowship, if necessary, as long as they're justified in their own rights. That's strife. You'll notice these aren't divisions over doctrine. The Bible actually does say, you know, that you can split off from a group if they are wrong doctrinally. It is within your rights to do so. Right? That is true heresy. You get out. Don't you stay in a fellowship that is preaching heresy. It's wrong. Get out of it. No, this is nothing to do with that. This is where it's you against someone else. It's a personality clash that's going on. Oh, it's so evil. And it's Satan's work in the midst. There we are. And that's the word strife or variance uh, as it's put there. I think the nearest I can get to the word is wrangling. You know this wrangling that goes on in the midst of fellowship sometimes. The next one here is emulations. You see? Emulations. Now what's that? Here, it is literally the Greek word for jealousy. Jealousy. I think we had some ministry, didn't we, from Richard Worthing Davis. Uh, I think it must be a year ago now, but I remember it, about jealousy. And he actually said, jealousy must be one of the most evil things, he said. Because if you're jealous of someone else, you spend your life thinking and occupied with them, and either you feel all crushed, or you try and put them down. You see, that's what jealousy does. And there is tremendous jealousy. Do you remember I dealt with it on one of the earlier fellowship tapes, when I said everything we have is from the Lord, so stop being jealous of other people. So some people can speak in public and you can't. Well, who are we on that? God's given them the ability to do it, you know? And some people are pretty, are they? Oh, well, you poor old sausage, you know? <laughs> But one day, God is going to call you into account, and they'll be called into account. Those who are rich are going to be called into account for how they've used their riches for God. But this is pure jealousy in the midst. And quite honestly, you're jealous of this person. You're jealous he's a leader. You're jealous that she happens to get on well with that particular leader, and so it goes on. And so this sort of strife begins in the midst. It's all a work of the flesh and has to stop in the midst. Easy as that, you see? All right, next one. Wrath. Do you know what wrath is in the Greek? It's fits of rage. And here's someone who looks perfectly calm, and suddenly they fly off the handle. You see? By the way, this is what I'm like in the natural. It's true. Most of you wouldn't believe that, but there are two people at least in the village who know it. And I'll leave it to your imagination why they know it. You see, in the natural, this is exactly what I used to be. I've said before, I think, that some people, when they get angry, go bright red in the face. Others go very pale and beat behind the earlobes. <laughs> and that's the type of person described here and the type of person I was. I could take so much, you know. And my teeth were gripped together as if they were wired together. And I'd say, okay, okay. Yes, I see, yes. Well, get out then! <laughs> and that would be it, you see. And suddenly they're talking and blah, 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 and smash the phone down. That's fits of rage, you see. Um, yes, it, uh, it's seen very rarely in me these days. In fact, my wife has never seen it, which is wonderful. Praise the Lord. But this is who I am in the natural. It's a work of the flesh, you see. And it's got to be got rid of in the midst. Sometimes I've been to fellowships where people have stand-up rows in the middle of the meeting, like this, and someone goes storming out. Oh, yes, that's nice, isn't it? Yes, we're Jesus. 
actually is in the presence. And you, put, you make that type of display. It's got to be outlawed as far as the fellowship is concerned and so on. Right, the next one here is the word strife. And the word strife actually is the word factions. And here you've got so far as to create power blocks in a fellowship. I don't think we have too much of this in our fellowship, I'm pleased to say. But we used to have, and I'll tell you this, uh, I go to fellowships still today where they've got it. You've got a third over there who happen to think that this man is the best man in the midst, and he's right. And a, man, a, a group over there who think this man's right, and the other group who quite honestly don't like either of them. <laughs> and what happens is this. A man gets up and he says, well, I want to uh, read a certain scripture. And that third of the fellowship, their heads are up, you know, they're listening intensely. Oh, this must be the word of the Lord. Fantastic. That group of the fellowship heads are down saying, oh, what's he going to say now? <laughs> Bet this is an attack on the fellowship as usual. You see? And then half in the middle saying, well, is this right or is this wrong? What's going on? <laughs> and so you get this power block, you see. And finally he shuts up and sits down. And so the chap over there who's been bristling says, right, well, I'm going to get my spoke in. So he stands up. Suddenly their heads go down and these heads come up. <laughs> And so, you know, he stands up and says, well, uh, I want to follow on from what our brother says. <laughs> and then he goes on to absolutely contradicted on every single point, you see. And that's what's meant here by this little word, where you get power blocks. Oh, you see it sometimes, you know, someone comes in and then as soon as they're in through the door, in comes their cronies. You know, and in they come, the whole bunch of them, and they're all looking self-righteous and spruce and pristine saints, and they all sit down in a little power group, and they're the spiritual ones of the fellowship. You know, everyone else isn't quite as spiritual, but they're the ones that really know what God's about. And so it goes on. It's all a work of the flesh. And this is actually what I would call party spirit. Party spirit. Look, we're only on God's side. We shouldn't be on anyone else's side. On God's side, that's all. And in the midst, if a person has the word of the Lord, no matter which group they're from, Bogner or Chichester or Barnum or Celsius or any other group. It doesn't matter, you know. It's God's word that's got to come out. Now that's what is meant by the word strife there. The next word is seditions, and it's actually the word divisions. Or literally, I think, standing apart. And here, you actually have people who won't talk to one another. Can you believe that that could go on in the body of Jesus Christ? They won't even talk, not in the slightest way. Won't have anything to do with them. And so if someone comes up to them and says hello, they say, oh, hello, and they move straight off. Or they say, well, I'm not going around to see her. No, I'm afraid, uh, well, she and I have had a bit of a disagreement, so we're not talking. Or he and I are, frankly, uh, well, we have certain agreements. We've just agreed to differ. Super. And meanwhile, the head isn't blessed, and neither are the feet blessed in the middle of the fellowship. And this goes on. And then heresies which is the word choosings. This is preferences, you know, in the midst. Preferences. This isn't the love of the Lord, you know, because God loves everyone in the midst. Yes? But we are a bit finicky over who we'd like fellowship with. You know, we can't just fellowship with anyone. We've got to have our own little group around. That's what it's, it's saying. And the last one there, then, is envyings. And that means feelings of ill will. Feelings of ill will. Amazing. Now, obviously, many of these words overlap, but why do you think Paul devoted so much to them? Because he knew this was the type of attack that would stop a fellowship from functioning. And these things have got to be outlawed. Wow! In most fellowships I go to, I see these every day. I see it in the midst of our own fellowship. It's terribly evil that this should go on. We're told to dwell at peace with one another. 
we've got to ask God to give us that type of peace if the work of God is going to go on. And if, honestly, if the cap fits, please will you wear it this morning? It's a personal invitation to wear this hat if this is true of you. You've got to stop it because you're putting ego above the work of the Lord. You're putting your own little rights above the great purpose of God in this place. It's terribly wrong. All right, and then he, he goes on. And by the way, what does it say, verse 24? They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. That's right. You put these things to death. He's already done so on his own cross. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And then in verse 26, it says, as if you haven't had enough of this. Let us not... Let us not be desirous of vain glory. In other words, I'm going to be proved right. Well, God will justify me. That's it. That's vain glory. What's it matter if God justifies you? You're going to be dead in a few years' time. You know, so big deal. You go down justified. Hallelujah. Yes, I've got bad news for you. Under the gospel of Jesus Christ, so does the chap who was wrong. Praise God. He's justified in Christ. He says, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another. Don't do it. Envying one another. Cut it out. And don't stop there because actually the chapter ends in the next verse. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So if you see someone doing this, then stop them. Why don't we stop people when they come and they start gossiping on about someone? Why don't we stop them? Why don't we actually say, get behind me, Satan. You're speaking the devil's words and I won't have it. You get behind me and stop this. You're disrupting the work of God. And it says there, but considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Because Paul knows these are lovely things that we all long to indulge in. You see, you just beware. Okay, just go across then to Galatians 5 verse 14 and 15. Right? Galatians 5, 14 and 15. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, and he's talking to Christians, if you bite and devour one another, these are words used of wild cats and dogs. You know, have you seen a cat that's a wild cat or a cat that's been injured and you approach it? Have you seen <laughs> teeth exposed, claws out? Christians sometimes are like that, you know, when you tread on an, an exposed nerve and suddenly they're up for blood. That's the type of image that's given here, you know. If ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. And it, wouldn't it be tragic? if two particular beloved saints of God can't agree with one another and finally they disagree so much they're both out of fellowship and then they find that the world really presses in on them. That would be a tragedy in the midst. I think this picture here, you know, take heed lest ye be, be not consumed one of another, reminds me of that little story of the two snakes. Have you heard this little story? Who grabbed one another by the tail and started swallowing one another. Can you imagine that? And eventually they were so successful there was nothing left because they'd swallow one another absolutely. Many fellowships are like that, you know, that if there is enough strife in the midst of a fellowship, eventually a fellowship will collapse. And the thing we say we love will actually go down, down the drain. 
Yes? And then, of course, the last result is that everyone says, well, they were going fine. It all seemed to be so wonderful. Oh, but of course, uh, they've collapsed now. You know? It's so wrong. It takes away from the glory of the Lord. Yet we will often allow our personal ego trip to come before the work of the Lord. These things have got to stop. If they do not stop in a fellowship, the whole work of the Lord will be prevented from going forward. And then uh, just a, a couple of verses to show how we ought to live, right? There's the negative. Let's go through to the positive. If you go along to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, And verse 4, verse 11. Oh, I wish more Christians had this written up on their walls. You know, this is one that I don't see in many Christian houses. I wish we did see it. Look what it says. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. One Thessalonians four verse eleven, and that you study to be quiet. Well, 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 study to be quiet. Now, many people in the move of the spirit think that it's spiritual to all the time be fretful and on the go and on the move. You know, got to be here, got to be there, got to be woo, moving round like this. That's what they think. Staggering. This is the verse they need on their wall, and when they get up in the morning. Study to be quiet, will you? It doesn't mean that you make less noise, right? It means that there is a peace in your own heart, yeah? Because it is not spiritual to be all stirred up, you know. It is spiritual to be nice and peaceful, so wherever you go, the peace that's within you goes out upon the people you greet. That doesn't happen with many Christians. Most Christians are so stirred up in the move of the Spirit that wherever they go, everyone else gets stirred up too, you know? And I've had to minister to people who were just enjoying the Lord, they were praising God for the blessings, then someone blew in, you know, and they sit down, and by the time they leave, they're thinking all of the negative. Oh, I didn't realize all this negative was going on. I didn't know she was in such trouble, and things like this. None of their business. It's just stirred up everything, you know. And finally, it's the Lord who is removed from the place of glory and lordship in the midst. It's terribly wrong. Study to be quiet, so that actually, when people come to see you and when they meet you, the peace of God oozes out of you on every hand. That's what it is. And do your own business. Get on with your life, will you? Before you get on with the work of the fellowship, get on with your own life. That's the first thing. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. And that's easy in those days, very difficult in our days when there's unemployment. But if, as you know, those who have time on their hands should use it for the work of the Lord. Okay? Um, go to another one in 2 Thessalonians 3. Verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. What a super thing. Yeah, and that was the rule in the early church. If you weren't going to work, you weren't going to eat either. So they all had agape feasts together, except for those who were too lazy to do any work. Again, unemployment affects our picture of this, you see. It's the willingness to work 
that we're talking of here. And notice what it says, and you've got to watch this. If you've got time in your hands, this is the danger. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now those of you who are without a job, don't you go from house to house spreading gossip about the people you happen to know about. Because then you are a busybody and you might find one of the elders knocking at your door one day. You know, praise the Lord. That day is going to come. And we'll actually say, excuse me, you've had nothing to do and we hear you've been gossiping because someone has told us that you've been gossiping about someone else. Can I ask you, do you have nothing better to do with your time than to spend it in gossip like that? And then verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And if you are without a job, make sure your time's used effectively for God and not negatively. Because you ha will have, if it's used negatively, you'll have 24 hours in which to disrupt the work of God in this place. And you call yourself a friend of God. Oh dear, oh dear. It's got to stop, you see. Fine. With that said, how do we get through to the place then where the, these things are true? where in our hearts we find no personal animosity, no personal bitterness or strife. How do we do it? I believe the answer, quite honestly, is that you need to go away and meditate and contemplate upon the Beatitudes given in Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. I think if this is your problem, you must go away and you must get on your knees and seek God and search through these verses. I don't have time to go through them. Let's just take a couple of them. Turn to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. And can I just take two of these Beatitudes and see how contrary they are to the spirit of the world and the natural spirit that's within us. Look at verse 3. Blessed, it says, or happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the world outside, it's blessed who are the strong in spirit, you know? Well, I think I can manage. I'm a self-made man. I've always been able to cope with my life, you know? Well, the bigger they are, the harder they fall later on, you see? Hallelujah. Here, it's the exact opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word poor means dependent upon someone else. Someone who actually has to have God in order to be a success. And without God, they just can't do anything. That is being poor in spirit. And someone who is dependent. You think of strife in the body of Christ. Is it caused because people are poor in spirit? Is it? If everyone was poor in spirit, do you honestly think there'd be any strife in the midst of a fellowship? Certainly not. What's it caused by? Because we're all just too strong in spirit. That's the trouble. And so you're strong in spirit, I'm strong in spirit, and we hit head on like two rams going for one another. <laughs> do you see? It's all wrong. Blessed, happy, contented are those who are poor in spirit. And then down to verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus said of himself, I'm meek, he said. Meek and lowly was the phrase he used. It doesn't mean weak, you know. No, no. It means someone who has strength, who has strength, and yet is prepared not to use that strength. That's meekness, you see? There it is. So don't think it's a, a bad quality. It's an absolutely excellent quality. It's being gentle in strength. I think the best example in the Bible is the... David, 
Do you remember the time when David was running from his son Absalom and he was fleeing away? And a man called Shimei came out who hated David. He started throwing stones at him. And David didn't have, to have a riot shield either, you see. He started throwing stones at David, started swearing at him and cursing him. And the men who were around David said, David, we'll go down and we'll kill that chap. David said, no, no, no. He says, uh, probably he's quite justified in what he's saying. No, let's just leave him. Let's just pass on. That's being meek, you see. It's actually a desire, a, well, a willingness not to hit back when someone hits at you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All right, then read through the others. Now in verse 23. Verse 23 of Matthew 5. Look what it says here. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and you're coming to worship, you're coming to praise the Lord, okay? You're coming to give God your heart, and look what he says, if you bring thy gift to the altar and there thou rememberest that thy brother has aught against thee. It does not say here, and you remember that you've got something against someone else. That's what you see in most body, body meetings, you know. Someone's out with someone, they've got someone against, something against someone, so they sit there and before they can give their gift, they've got to get right with this brother. So they go up and say, Matthew... You offended me yesterday, and I just want to get it right in front of my brothers and sisters. <laughs> you see, and what they're saying is, I'm going to do you in, you know, and you can't hit back. That's not what it says. It says, if you remember that you have done anything against your brother or sister, and it's a legitimate thing. The brother and sister is so spiritual that they're actually sitting there just praising the Lord. They haven't noticed the damage you've done to them. But if you know you've damaged your brother and sister... Before you go and offer your gift, you have to go and apologise. So really, I should say, Matthew, although you haven't said anything, I think I really offended you yesterday because I was so strong towards you. And I just want to say before my brothers and sisters that it was wrong. Or not even before you're my brothers and sisters, just privately to him. Do you see the difference in attitude here? Oh, but in body meetings sometimes or in fellowships, it's not this at all. No, no, you've got to get right. And you've got to say, this brother's offended me. No, no. The Bible says, take no thought of a suffered wrong. Right? So there's no allowance for that in the body of Christ at all. You don't take any thought for a suffered wrong, but you do take thought for the time when you've caused suffering to someone else. See how spiritual this is. If only the body of Christ started functioning like this, we'd start to see the head being blessed with the oil, and it would dribble down everyone else, and we'd all be blessed. Praise God. All right. Let's just end for today with one verse in Philippians. Really, you know, what I'm saying is this, that we've got to lay down our lives, our rights, the things that are affecting us for the sake of the whole body of Christ and for the sake of the work of God. And I wonder how many of us there are, honestly, that are prepared to do this. This is embracing the cross daily, and taking no thought of those things that come against us. Right. Instead of gossiping, and I hope you will be corrected if you try it from now on, instead of slandering, backbiting, being preoccupied with what is wrong, being preoccupied with those things that you felt bitter about, instead of that, this is what should be true of your life. A command from Paul. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, not hearsay, not gossip, whatsoever things you happen to know are true, 
Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Think on them, which means meditate upon them. Get into them so that you are thinking of nothing else. At this point, we will start seeing unity of a tremendous depth coming forth in the body of Christ. We've got to help one another get into this place. That means we've got to be humble. And when we see things going wrong, and when we see people gossiping and all the rest, we actually have to stop, stop them in a spirit of gentleness. We have to say, you oughtn't to be doing that, because you're an enemy of Christ in the midst. What a tragedy if when we get to heaven, and we're expecting crowns galore, because we've been justified every step of the way. We're expecting crowns galore, and suddenly God says, you said you were my friend, yet you acted constantly like my enemy. And he says, here is your reward. You've had your most of your reward down there on earth. Here is the little bit that you've got. That would be a tremendous tragedy. And my prayer for us all is that we'll take this word that I've given this morning seriously. Go away and think about it and correct those things that are wrong in our own hearts. Don't look at your brother and sister unless they come across your path. Look at your own heart and then God will be able to deal with you. Let's pray together at the end of this morning's meeting. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.